And that's just very simplified terms, but that's how, that's how Bitcoin works. And Bitcoin was the first, today it's still the biggest. Welcome to the Factor 2.9 podcast. This is our first ever episode in English. We have been having a podcast for 20 weeks, I think it is, in Swedish. So some of you listeners out there may be familiar with our voices from that time. But this is the first episode that we ever upload in English. And it's the start of a new era in which we are going to be uploading podcasts in English. Yes, and it's going to be in English only, so no more Swedish in our future podcasts. Uh, we're doing this for two reasons mainly. The first one is we're going to be able to reach new interesting people this way and speak to people from across the entire world. And also we're going to be able to reach a new audience. And the other important reason is we're going to grow faster than ever before. Exactly, because that's our motto on this podcast. We have translated our motto to the new motto, which is learn, grow and evolve, which is what we stand for, basically. We want to develop as people in life in general, in subparts of life. And this, as you'll come to see, is a podcast about everything that you can think of. And we try to apply the 80-20 rule to everything that we do which means that we try to get 80% of the benefits with only 20% of the costs. Yes, but before we go ahead and start the show, we want to introduce ourselves to possible new listeners that haven't had the opportunity to listen to our Swedish podcast before. So I'm Magnus, I'm 49 year old, so to speak, in the middle of life. And then there's David, my son, he's 17, so that might be a little bit special. Um, us being family and the wide gap in age between us and uh, yeah so David's the youngster as I like to call him. 49 divided by 17 is approximately 2.9 and there with the name and we also hope that you can get 2.9 times as much out of life after listening to this podcast that's our ambition at least. So we're going to go ahead and speak to our first guest, Matthew Mazinskis, who is one of two hosts of the Crypto Voices podcast, which is one of the most well-known and widespread podcasts out there dealing with cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin in particular. So we'll head over to Matthew. Welcome, Matthew, from Crypto Voices to Factor 2.9. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, very kind of you to come on the show. Uh, we appreciate that a lot. Uh, Matthew Mesinskis, from where are you at this moment? Uh, I am at the moment. I'm actually in uh, Lithuania, uh, but yep. I uh, I travel a lot uh, between there and Latvia and do some work in Estonia as well. So the Baltic states. Um, but I am or originally uh, from the U.S. actually, but my father uh, immigrated to the U.S. Uh, after World War II and whatnot. So I grew up in the U.S., but um, for about 12 years I've been living in Latvia uh, and exploring the Baltic states. Yeah. And uh, you're the host of Crypto Voices, Crypto Voices, the podcast. Could you just tell us uh, in short about the pod? Yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, I started a podcast on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin uh, at the beginning of last year, so January uh, 2017. Uh, I did it mostly for creative purposes. I had sort of been be becoming bored with my financial uh, consulting job, and basically that means burying your head in a lot of Excel and Google Sheets and doing sensitive, you know, basically just doing sensitivity tables the whole time uh, for clients and things. So I was I was getting a bit bored with the finance work, and I wanted I, I had been filing Bitcoin for many years, but I wanted to do more uh, to educate others and educate myself uh, actually. So started this uh, this podcast. It it has two sort of components to it. The first one, which I was doing at the beginning twice a week, uh, was I was basically just reading uh, articles on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that I enjoyed 
and that I wanted to, uh, you know, that I, that I wanted to sp- spread the word for others uh, and sort of educate. And they're sort of like, you know, audible.com, you know, audiobooks, like narrations. I would just simply read them, go to a studio and read them and then put them up. And I, I had dabbled in some audio work as well as a side gig. I'd read some books and uh, done some advertising for some friends, um, but nothing too, you know, too serious. But I wanted to sort of improve that and keep that sort of creative thing going. So that's that was the start. And then about a year ago uh, in May, I... I uh, called up my buddy Fernando Ulrich, who is uh, a big writer on Bitcoin in Brazil. He actually uh, wrote the, for, the first Portuguese language book on Bitcoin. Um, I said, look, you know, we, we got a lot to talk about. This is just crazy space, a lot of growth happening, a lot of interest. We should, you know, we should focus our economic views that we have. We have a lot of, uh, we can get into what that means, but um, I actually met Fernando at a, uh, at a, I've mentioned this on our show, maybe you remember, but um there's a finance, sort of finance, economic, uh, free market-based uh, conference that was uh, going on in Europe in 2009, uh, put on by the Mises Institute, which is a think tank in the U.S. Very, it's pretty hardcore, you know, libertarian. I don't like that word, libertarian, but I don't know. The European word would be like classical liberal, um, uh, you know, l- low, low government intervention, high market, uh, high market, uh, you know, basically believing in the free market. Uh, more than anything and trying to analyze that, figure out what it means and whatnot. But we were always, uh, we were always interested in the monetary side. So central banking, gold, silver, uh, supply of currencies around the world and what that means. And before Bitcoin, you know, that was mostly just about gold. (laughs) That was a way to sort of inoculate yourself from some of the inflation that central banks do around the world. And everybody wrote about that and everybody knows that story, uh, at least in the you know, libertarian or classical liberal circles. Uh, but Bitcoin came along as very different, is confusing. A lot of economists even today don't accept it, don't understand it. And we, you know, we, Fer- Fernando is actually an Austrian economist. So this, this brand of economic thinking I'm referring to is it's called Austrian economics. It's very much focused on the free market, as I said, as, as trying to solve, you know, most all problems. Uh, instead of government intervention, and Bitcoin is a, is it fits the bill. It is a free market intervention. It wasn't started by any uh, government, although money usually does start in the free market, uh, which we we learned from uh, Doctor Doctor White, who's an expert on monetary policy. He was on our show a couple uh, episodes ago. But anyway, I, I can stop there. But basically, uh, we're really interested in in sort of the history of money, the value of money. People take it for granted every day, but you know, as Ron Paul, a former presidential candidate in the U.S., says, you know, it's one half of every transaction. So it's a it's an extremely important important commodity in the uh, in the marketplace, and it's a good that is not it's taken for granted. People don't understand it as much, and Bitcoin is just blindsiding everybody because it is free market money. It's new, it's innovative, it's different, and anybody can take part in it. So it's really interesting, and that's that's what we've been doing basically for the last, you know, about a year and a half. All right, that was very interesting, and I think we'll talk more about your books and your content later, as sure. well as your views on the uh, potential outcome of the next ten years and uh, further down the line as well sure. for cryptos and. Uh, money in general but can we just uh, turn back the uh, band a little bit and look at what a cryptocurrency actually is could you explain that from the base level up yeah uh, so I think a couple uh, things to point out before you just uh, we try to define cryptocurrency Um, Fernando and I are very much what you would call like Bitcoin not blockchain people. Uh, for about the last three, four years, blockchain and, and cryptocurrency even has really become a buzzword, a hype word. You know, everybody's talking about it. Uh, you know, big academic institutions now, banks, central banks. Uh, I do a lot of sort of little research on uh, some of this stuff. I was reading the Bank of Sweden, made a statement recently uh, in March about how Bitcoin isn't money and whatnot. Um, so everybody's trying to, you know, their opinion on what this is but really to understand it um 
at, at its most basic, simple level, cryptocurrency, and, and I should start really with Bitcoin because Bitcoin was the first. And in our view, it's the most important. And I think it will be the most important in the next 100 years, <laughs> even. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not confident to say that. But um, the, uh, the, the concept, concept of cryptocurrency and the concept of Bitcoin is simply a protocol uh, like email. So email is a, is a set of rules. It's a, it's a technical protocol online that if you plug your computer into it and someone else plugs their computer into it, you follow a set of rules, you can talk to each other. Bitcoin in a basic sense is, is the same as that. It's a protocol and uh, anybody can plug into it. No one controls it. It's completely decentralized. It's just, it lives online. And uh, so the, the first question you may have if you, if you hear, okay, it's like email, it's a protocol like email, like SMTP or POP3 or, um, you know, if it's just a protocol on the web, uh, maybe it can be hacked or maybe it can be spammed. And the answer to that, uh, or, or you should say like uh, another question would be, you know, maybe it can be copied, right? Like if I can just send messages uh, like I can do with email and I can copy emails or I can copy music files, maybe I can copy bitcoins. And that is uh, a valid question. And um, without getting too technical, the answer is basically uh, it's a very elegant, uh, interesting, uh, and for those high enthusiasts like Fernando and myself and many others, we'd say it's even a beautiful system of sort of game theory that the creator, his name is Satoshi Nakamoto, he, he created in 2008 in a, in a white paper. He did not create any of these individual pieces that run Bitcoin. He just put them all together. So this is another important point. Like people think Bitcoin, they may think like it's a flash in the pan or it's like Snapchat, you know, plus money or something. It's just some new hype. It's not going to last. It's just, you know, it's just some random thing clearly our banking system is better and has more knowledge and you can do everything better. But that's not true. I mean, bit, the, 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 the pieces that go into Bitcoin, you know, go back to the 80s, to the 70s, like, and it uses thing, different pieces. So like cryptography, um, it uses, uh, it, it uses uh, this aspect, which is called proof of work, which is basically in, in simple terms, the reason uh, to answer my original question of you know, the second question you should have is like, okay, can it be hacked? Can it be copied? Can it be uh, brought down? Can the system be brought down? Can it be spammed? The reason that it can't, the one simple reason is that it has this uh, incentive mechanism where participants that plug into the Bitcoin network, they are incentivized more to participate because they can earn new Bitcoins that are mined every 10 minutes, it happens every 10 minutes, and they can earn transaction fees from other people spending Bitcoins. So that simple incentive in, in uh, very simple terms basically allows users on the Bitcoin network to simply, they benefit, this is the game theory I mentioned, they benefit just from participating in Bitcoin, earning Bitcoins from mining, uh, holding Bitcoin as a store of value. Everybody benefits in the Bitcoin system more than if someone would try to uh, attack it or spam it. And that's just very simplified terms, but that's how, that's how Bitcoin works. And Bitcoin was the first, today it's still the biggest. Uh, if you took all the Bitcoins in circulation, multiplied them by the market price of about $7,500 a uh, Bitcoin, you'd get something like $125 billion in market cap, which is extremely small, we can get into this. Uh, it's, it's extremely small in the overall financial system, but it has grown from zero in, uh, in nine years. And it's an extraordinary feat, in my opinion. And it's, again, like I said, no one controls it. No one can shut it down. It only operates by each individual sort of plugging in uh, to the protocol and using it. And that's that, in a nutshell, I hope it wasn't, I hope it made some sense. That, that in a nutshell, is what Bitcoin is and what cryptocurrency is. Uh, th when you talk about altcoins or other uh, coins you may hear in the, in the media, things like Ethereum or Litecoin or whatever, they, uh, in some sense, they are uh, basically copies of Bitcoin. In a software sense, I guess it's called a fork. So basically you take a copy of the Bitcoin code, you change a few parameters, and then you have Litecoin. Ethereum sort of developed from scratch, and they are trying to do different things than Bitcoin. We can get into that, but... Um, 
yeah, in a nutshell, it I'll, I'll, one more thing to conclude there. The whole process that I just described, what it does, what it creates is a digital, a digital asset that's scarce. It creates scarcity. It can't be copied. The file can't be copied. The file can't be uh, hacked uh, on, a, on a protocol level, on a base level. And that creates digital asset uh, scarcity. We're, we're the, only, the only thing that is comparable to that in our analog world is, um, is, is gold. And it is the, the notes and coins in your, in your pocket. Like literally the Krona in your pocket is uh, an asset that you own that you can definitely pay for things with. Uh, gold as well would be the same if you had gold in your, in your hand. And now Bitcoin. And, and Bitcoin is very unique because it's literally digital. Uh, it's a digital asset, which is very strange. Economists and uh, computer scientists, they've been looking at this, scratching their heads for years. <laughs> wondering how this this all happened but it just naturally arose in the market as a lot of good things do all right great that's that was really a great explanation of what bitcoin and cryptocurrency is but i'd like you to elaborate on why you think bitcoin will outperform altcoins as you're saying you think it will be much better in 100 years than it is now and more used why is that right Right. So the simple answer is uh, Bitcoin has uh, the largest network effect. Um, it has an ethos around its development. Uh, again, it's open source development. So anybody can plug in. Anybody can contribute to the code. Uh, you can find it online. You can uh, tinker with it. You can make suggestions to change it. Uh, m the, the developers on Bitcoin are massive compared to any other uh, cryptocurrency. And it's probably true as well, I would say, that money, you don't need, unless the state or the government wants to decree that you need to use it, uh, over the centuries, over the millennia, money usually arises uh, in, a, in a random, free market, spontaneous way. That's what happened with silver. That's what happened with gold. That's what happened with copper and bronze and, to some extent, platinum and palladium, some other precious metals. But... These are, these are just um, assets that started spontaneously, and you don't really need too many. Uh, some in the Bitcoin space argue you only need one. Um, I, I'm, not, I, I'm fine if that happens. I'm not completely... Uh, they, they, they call themselves Bitcoin maximalists. Fernando, my co-host on our show, is a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm a, I'm a bit more nuanced because I think there are use cases. I think some of these altcoins or uh, alternative crypto networks like Ethereum or... Uh, Zcash or Monero, these offer more privacy features than Bitcoin. I think that they all have a function, a role to play. Definitely not uh, in any position to make a prediction about how those would be over you know, the next hundred years. But I do think that a core select you know, group of protocols, it's, it's arguable that, that they will uh, find their own use case in the market, whether you need a privacy coin for some banking services or you know, having commerce. Uh, in your business and you want complete privacy. Bitcoin doesn't have complete privacy. You can track Bitcoin. That will improve over time as well. But as of right now, it does not have, you know, the let's say the best privacy. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin really is the story as far as all the innovation, uh, all of the the action in the in the in the uh, system. And so that's the one we focus on the most. But certainly, you know, we had uh, a couple weeks ago on our show, we had a creator of uh, a, an altcoin. It's called Zcash. Uh, it used to be Zero Coin, and and basically it was a. Uh, it, it is. It was founded on the idea of you know complete privacy and financial, financial privacy, financial freedom. Because, um, like I said, Bitcoin you can tra trace payments on on this blockchain back from each from each person that received it. To each person that send it, you can trace every single payment on the Bitcoin blockchain back to the very first block in 2009. So that's the term blockchain. That's what it means. It's a completely open digital ledger that everybody works to maintain in the world. Um, so you can you can trace it. It is open in Bitcoin, but it's not completely anonymous. And, and like I said, there will be some developments in that. But you know, some people want to move faster. They want to be a bit more experimental. And Zcash is one of those. And I think it's one that's very interesting. Um, where essentially everything is completely private and anonymous. Uh, if you use their, 
it can also not be anonymous. So let's not get into that. But <laughs> basically, it's an anonymous currency. And that's a use case, I think, where you uh, you will find a need for it in the market. So um, I guess I'll stop there if, if you have any follow-ups. Uh, I think it's fairly straightforward to, to see the use for Bitcoin as a store of value. But uh, do you think it will ever be used as a means of transaction uh, as well? Or will that be widespread? Yeah, yeah. Very good question. Um, because this is a, a constant debate in the Bitcoin community is uh, the, you have these three functions of money. You have the, the store of value, the, the uh, unit of account and the medium of exchange. And I will quote uh, Dr. Selgin, Dr. George Selgin, who was our first guest actually about a year ago. He he said, you know, if you if you want to money is it's hard to define a concrete thing such as money and how it arose over the centuries. There's nothing there's no. And Fernando said this on our one recent episode as well, like Friedrich Hayek, an Austrian economist, said this, you know, a lot of times we think of money as like a noun, but really it's an, it's it should be thought of as an adjective like it could be moneyness. Some things can be better money. Some things can be a bit worse money. And then to conclude that thought, Dr. Selgin, you know, he pointed out that really unit of account, store of value, at least in terms of money, those aren't very interesting. If you really want to, you know, across the threshold where you're talking about money, it should be a generally accepted medium of exchange, generally accepted everywhere to, you know, you acquire it to buy other things. And generally the, the, the community, the nation, the region, uh, they also will accept it. As I said, gold and silver have definitely naturally fulfilled that role for thousands of years. Uh, in recent years, uh, certainly since World War One, you know, fiat monies or government decreed monies have done that as well, and sometimes even longer. I think the Swedish the Swedish central bank is the longest uh, longest surviving central bank in the world. Uh, but uh, I just I sort of lay all that groundwork and say all that to say the jury is still out in cryptocurrency as to how Bitcoin will function as medium of exchange because Bitcoin has a scaling problem. I don't want to say problem in that it's not something that could be overcome. It will be overcome. But, you know, th this thing is literally pulling itself by its own boot bootstraps, by its own community. And uh, it's slow. Uh, this is another thing where I think if you hear someone in the media say, and trust me, I will answer your question. <laughs> I like to go on these tangents. But if you, if you hear someone in the media say, you know, oh, I'm going to disrupt uh, my company with blockchain. If that's what they say first, this is why we say we're Bitcoin, not blockchain people. Like those people probably don't understand what they're talking about. If they say we're going to disrupt our company with blockchain. And that's like your business model. Because blockchain is just a slow database. As I said, it, it, uh, it contains every transaction from today to 10 minutes ago, to an hour ago, all the way back to 2009 is in that blockchain. And in Bitcoin right now, I'll look it up while I'm talking, I don't want to misspeak, but it's something like 15 gigabytes of space. All right, so where could you find that? Uh, we have it on our uh, website, cryptovoices.com, but it's you can find it in plenty of other places. Uh, BitInfo Charts is another one. So when we get to money and we want to talk about medium exchange, and, and yeah, so it's about, it's about 16, it's about 17 gigs actually right now, the Bitcoin blockchain, 17 gigabytes. So anyone that wants to participate on a, on a local level and, and really contribute, really contribute to the Bitcoin network, um, they need to what is called run a node, download the software and, and verify, validate transactions. So it's a lot of space, 17 gigabytes, and that's only 10 years of data. So if you sort of, people have done the math on this, I won't, we don't have to do it here, but logically, rationally, we can't conclude that every single transaction in the world, you know, from buying your cup of coffee is the famous one to buying a house or buying gold or anything, you know, we can't, we can't logically, at least on the, the face of it, it seems very difficult to believe that every single transaction could be included in the, in the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means there may be some second layer solutions uh, to deal with that. And there are things in Bitcoin right now. Called, and another, uh, so again, all of these things need to be solved before we even get to your question about medium of exchange. So right now it's just, no, it, it can't be done. It's technically impossible right now today in 2018 to have Bitcoin be a fully functioning, fully circulating medium of exchange. Um, but there are definitely solutions in the future where that can work. And an example 
is right now the Bitcoin blockchain literally does about seven transactions a second. Um, banks, v, you know, Visa, MasterCard, they can do it at peak levels, peak levels like 50,000. Uh, mm. On average, they probably only do about 5,000, three to 5,000 a year, but they can get up to 50,000. Bitcoin does seven. <laughs> so there you go again. It's not, it's not ready today for, for prime time in, ter- in terms of being a medium of exchange. Uh, but they're working on solutions for this. A, a common one that perhaps you have heard of if you've been following space at all is, is the Lightning Network. This is being built out uh, this year. There are, other, there are other things that are coming as well which make them even faster. But hopefully, ideally, is we can sort of outsource. Uh, the Bitcoin blockchain will still be relatively, let's say, slow and, and computationally uh, intensive and maybe even expensive to settle a, a transaction on the Bitcoin chain. But you can go on a layer, uh, sort of a bit outside, and then, w- which means basically your, your coins are now on the Lightning Network. And that's a bit, it, it, you're slightly sacrificing security. Not, uh, again, I'm, I always focus on the economic stuff, not the technical stuff, so I'm not the person to answer all of these uh, technical questions. But basically the idea is you, you focus a little, you uh, sacrifice a bit of security um, at the moment, to make the transactions. And then if you really want, you can settle on the Bitcoin blockchain later. It's a long-winded way of saying, yes, it is possible in the future where Bitcoin can do hundreds of thousands or millions of transactions a second. That definitely is like on the roadmap of Bitcoin and people are working to make that happen. And when and if, uh, definitely it's a question of when, not if, that does happen, uh, you know, we're going to see, we're going to see more adoption. We will see uh, businesses, merchants, individuals start to demand Bitcoin because as far as I can tell, it's a more sound money. It's a more stable money than, you know, the dollar, the euro or, uh, you know, the Krona or anything. So that's, that's, uh, again, uh, uh, a long winded answer to, to your point about a medium of exchange. But I would say for right now, definitely is it, what's the use case of Bitcoin? Like why, why are people holding Bitcoin? Why would you want to hold it is uh, is a store of value, as you mentioned. So sort of like a digital gold, it's taken on that role. Uh, and as I said, it's about 100, over $125 billion in market cap. So it's definitely increasing. But gold right now, just to give you an idea, gold has about an $8 trillion market cap. Uh, so again, it, it, it's, uh, it's going to take time. It's going to be a, you know, you have to have some patience. But I do think Bitcoin is the is the coin that's that's primed to to tackle some of these issues. And I guess another problem for the Bitcoin network to really become widespread is the user friendliness of the network. Sure. If I want to invest in Bitcoin as just a private person with not a lot of money, then I don't really have that opportunity today without big fees. I I tried to do it at Coinbase, but there are quite high fees there and now I just do it in certificates instead. So do you think that that will become easier in the coming years? Yeah. And just to clarify, when you say you do it in certificates, what do you mean? How are you, how are you buying it? I'm buying from a third party. Okay. Uh, like in cash, you're doing it in cash. Yeah. I'm buying with my own cash. Yeah, exactly. Not from other cryptocurrencies. Yeah. 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 Uh, what was your question again the, in light of all that will it become easier in the coming years to invest in cryptocurrencies in general and bitcoin yeah 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 uh, th- there is it's a good question um i can tell you when i first uh found out about bitcoin and and started to realize it tied in with a lot of my economic philosophy uh and and just thought it was a good safe sound asset to hold uh, it took me years to actually understand that, uh, both from the volatility. You know, there was a hack in the famous MT Gox, empty or literally spelled MT or Mount Gox. Uh, it was an old trading card exchange. They turned into a Bitcoin exchange in Japan. Famous. They went bankrupt in 2014 and still dealing with it, uh, the uh, litigation process today. But, you know, th- it was so difficult to even you had to send your money to Japan by like check uh, even, or, you know, you could use a bank wire at some point, but it was very difficult to even buy way back in those days and very volatile. There was that uh, a first hack that happened in the summer of 2011. 
so about seven years ago. And that was when I first uh, was starting to read about it, still hadn't bought any yet. And I was very turned off by the fact that it went from like $30 to under a dollar in a couple seconds because an exchange, not the Bitcoin network, not the protocol as we were talking about, but an exchange was hacked and people let it, left their Bitcoin on those exchanges, on that exchange, you know, lost their, uh, lost their funds and the price crashed. So it was, that definitely turned me off at the time. And I tell that story a lot to people because it's, it's, it's definitely, there's so many f- factors here about this subject. Like it takes time. It's, it's, it takes time for, uh, People, if you're really interested in this, you can learn more about it, and it, you can definitely buy Bitcoin. And it's and it then today it's light years easier than it was then, and light years you know safer and actually less volatile. Believe it or not, even though the price was twenty thousand dollars per Bitcoin in in December, and now it's seventy five hundred dollars uh, today. Believe it or not, that's less volatile than it was uh, in 2011 and 2012 when I first started to learn about it. So mm-hmm. the reason I say that is. I think that's a good lesson for everybody. It, it, it really, it's, 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 it's a very individual case with Bitcoin. Like there's no, again, like there's no central person to, to say you need to buy Bitcoin or you need to, to hold it. It's just going to have to happen spontaneously in the market with companies offering better services, better education, better information. And that has happened in the last, uh, you know, seven, eight years, uh, light years, I think where it used to be. But nonetheless, like you said, and certainly I don't know when you were dealing with Coinbase, but if it was the end of last year, there was a lot of issues with uh, with the scaling uh, process. I think it should be easier now. I don't actually deal with Coinbase, but or have an account with them. But um, you know, it it is getting better uh, from that side. And I guess just to to wrap up my answer, it, the the final interesting aspect here is that it's probably going to be generational uh when young people say younger people say that uh, it definitely turns older generations off or we sound a bit smug or whatnot but i mean if you think about you really have to think about it on this scale like if you think about you know your grandmother depending on how old you are let's say your grandmother when she first learned about email when she first learned about uh when, when she first got a cell phone and then when she, or a mobile phone and when she first, you know, maybe got on Facebook, if she's on Facebook, if your grandmother is you know young enough to do one of those things, you see that it, it's, it, it just depends. There are some people in the world that will not even care to try to have any interest in this technology. And unfortunately, I, there's no other easy way to say, you know, we had Brian Kelly, he's a famous, uh, Bitcoin trader in, in New York. Uh, he has, he's on a show called Fast Money in New York. We interviewed him. He said the same thing. Like he was interviewing, you know, Nobel laureate economists and getting in debates with them. In definitely smart people, definitely smart people that understand the monetary system, the government uh, finance system, but they just don't take the effort to look into it a little bit. And I was one of those people as well. You know, just didn't make the effort. Uh, unfortunately, because that Bitcoin was under ten dollars then, and I, I didn't take the effort. But now, uh, and it's not only about investment; it's it's more about like a better society, a better money. And I I, I do think a big feature in sort of will it become easier for all of us all to use is some patience. And unfortunately, interestingly, I think it's there will be a lot of older uh, uh, the older generation which simply will just let this go. They will not. They will not adopt it, and it's only going to be the younger generation. And that's that's significant because, you know, I remember, I don't know how old you guys are, but when I was in, uh, I, I'm, I'm 35 now, and I was in university uh, in the U.S. Uh, 13, 12, 13 years ago, I graduated. And I, I had to literally, for my college job, for my university job, you know, go stand and wait in line at a bank to cash a check. Uh, I don't know how that sounds. I know that Sweden is very advanced in trying to be all digital, although albeit centralized digital uh, economy, unlike Bitcoin, which is decentralized digital economy. But uh, to hear if a young person, like if someone under 20 in the U.S. heard today that you had to wait in line to cash your money, to get access to your money digitally, you know, it, it just it would sound insane. Or if you if you had to if you if heard that you had to wait five business days to for your payment to clear or longer, 
these are the types of things that were actually common for all of us, even, you know, 12, 13 years ago. So that's, I think, a very important point. Even the system we have today, yeah, it's getting better and you can cash checks. Americans, I know in Europe, you guys don't really, we don't use checks much. It's very easy to make a SEPA bank payment compared to the U.S., but the U.S. still uses a ton of checks and they, uh, they cash them on their phone at least. But the, even the system today is, is so antiquated compared to, to Bitcoin. So the biggest problem is, as you rightly point out, getting into the network, you know, getting that education, getting the, the, uh, taking the initiative to just get into the network and have some Bitcoin and then where the economy can develop. And unfortunately, I don't think we're there yet. I think it's going to take a few more years. Uh, but I, I, I predict that a huge impetus will be the younger generation, people that just, they have no need to go to a bank. Why would they ever want to go anymore? Waste their time at a bank. They can easily set up a Bitcoin wallet on their phone, on their computer, securely hold funds. And then, you know, maybe their business starts, maybe they start to earn money in Bitcoin and that's how they get their first Bitcoin. And then you're off to the races. I think you're absolutely correct in that a lot of older people will never give this a proper chance and not make the effort to truly understand it. I think it was Charlie Munger who just recently said something along the lines that trading in Bitcoin is like trading in freshly harvested baby brains or something like it's, that. It's incredible. I have to I have to comment on that because uh, I. I this that is an incredible statement from a, an established businessman. I mean, Buffett as well has been you know disparaging it for years. Um, uh, Jamie Dimon famously said it was a fraud at uh, at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase last year. Uh, you have Nuriel Rabini, who is a relatively well known economist, uh, a couple like a month ago at the Milken Institute, a debate, literally frothing at the mouth, like literally saying, you know, it's, it's BS, it's crazy. This is decentralization stuff is just all made up. It's BS, it's BS. Like there, it, it, I think we're on the right track when we literally see the establishment making insane statements like mining Bitcoin or working in Bitcoin is akin to harvesting baby brains. That is a statement that only sounds like the establishment is going insane. <laughs> I can't. Yes. I can't put it any other way. Like you, you would never make that statement uh, unless you truly just don't understand it and don't want to make the effort to understand all of the good it's going to bring. And we can continue to talk about the good it's going to bring if it's not clear yet to the listeners. But um, I, I think that is a very telling, very interesting signal from the establishment. They're, they're, they're making insane comments now, and it's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to, because it's so full of, you know, anger or resentment. Obviously, there's something really challenging about it to them. Uh, I just can't understand why he has to make that kind of a comparison. Yeah. It's, it's a bit insane, as you said. Yeah, and, and just one more point on that. It will be... We haven't seen it yet, but we probably will at some point see a uh, more of a battle, you know, whether the battle is technological or a war of words or both, uh, you know, where really academia and really the government, like the state that prints the money and has control of the money, they really come after these currencies. You know, we can go from as gentle as saying bad things about it, which they do now, to making it completely illegal, which they could do. But, uh, you know... People in, in the cryptocurrency space and Bitcoin space, which truly believe, as I do, that it has, you know, world changing potential, like able to bring Africa, you know, plenty of parts of the developing world, Latin America, where my co-host lives. You know, there are so many parts of the world where w these banking services that we take for granted just don't exist. You know, how are you going to go set up a uh, I, I'll take this one from Andreas Antonopoulos. I think he says it about, you know, just imagine a, a chicken farmer or something in in Nigeria, like, how is he going to deal with JP Morgan Chase with his non-existent birth certificate and his non-existent ID and his non-existent passport? How's he going to set up a bank account in a newly established non-existent branch of JP Morgan Chase in Nigeria? He's not going to do it. And they, and they don't do it. In fact, you know, Nigeria for years has already done banking, you know, with M-Pesa and whatnot on their phones. But now they have an even like fully decentralized, fully secure, nobody else's liability, only their asset on the phone that they can conduct business in. 
it's night and day. Uh, there's just there's no other alternative for developing markets. It's it's truly a step up for them. So again, oh, and one more point, one more point to this as well. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. White, monetary expert, uh, who we had on a couple shows ago as well. He said, you know, which I which is is common knowledge. You know, there's there's a cottage industry. If you want to be an economist and talks about money, or you want to be high up in a central bank, Rick's Bank, or uh, uh, Bank of England or something, you know, you need to, you can't veer too far from the official narrative. You know, I mean, the, the, the point is, and it's, it's like this, uh, this, this news release I saw from the Swedish central bank. I think they did it in March. They just said, you know, Bitcoin is not money. Why is it not money? Because we have the authority from the state. We have the authority from the government and we have the control to issue it for the best interest of the people. You know, you can wrap that up very nicely and, I'm, I'm really, I'm not trying to sound, uh, totally against the man or against the government. I, I try to take a nuanced view, but it's just the fact that technologically our lives are better when we, when we harness the power of, of, you know, good technology. And I think that Bitcoin has, Bitcoin's name is written all over that. And I don't think any innovation that a central bank could do a couple hundred year old institution or hundreds of years old in, in Sweden's case. Uh, I don't want to pick on Sweden too much. I'm just, you know, trying to bring note for you guys. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I just don't, you know, there's a reason if there's a reason why you might hear economists speak badly about it. Well, as Dr. White pointed out, it's a cottage industry of, of, uh, that, that, that's, that's who you get paid by. You get paid by the central bank. You get paid by a state academic or government institution to talk about those things. So there, there will you know, this has been talked about for years in the Bitcoin world. It's it's going to come if it's a slow churn and burn and like most, you know, people just wake up one day and, and finally realize, yeah, we're all using Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, if it's if it's slow or fast or if it's if it's a it's a lightning bolt of a moment where everybody realizes it. But there probably will come sometime in the next couple of years where more serious regulations, more serious comments uh, from these, from the state, from the governments, from the parliaments, from the central banks of the world, where they really try to crack down. But we have not, uh, to be honest, we have not actually seen that uh, yet. Hmm. Interesting discussion here about the cryptocurrencies, but I'd like to move over a bit to the blockchain. And my question is, what impact on society do you think that the different applications of blockchain can uh what do you think that blockchain can have for an effect on the society sure yeah so here i would uh i would reiterate again what i mentioned uh, before you know i i call myself like a bitcoin not blockchain enthusiast um fernando would say the same and whether we vary on our degree our degrees of how much we really like bitcoin or really like uh another cryptocurrency uh the, the important, the really important thing to understand with blockchain is that all of this blockchain technology, it's just a slow database. It really is, as I said, it's a slow database. It can develop in certain networks as it's developing very quickly in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, some altcoins are, are doing some different things and trying to do some programs and escrow, uh, escrow type programs or, uh, trying to do it where insurance companies could work on the blockchain or real estate companies could work on the blockchain. But these things really are uh, fundamentally different than the blockchain with a capital T, the blockchain, which is which is Bitcoin, which is the first one. You know, uh, the white paper that Satoshi Nakamoto wrote in 2009, it didn't even mention the word blockchain. It said, it said a we are you know this through this this system with a chain of digital signatures or a chain of proof of work a chain of uh, blocks, which again as I, as I said all transactions go back to day one in Bitcoin. That's how everybody knows that nothing was double spent and that keeps the system going. Uh, it was it was all about something that was native to the protocol. We were, we had a token that incentivized users to use it and incentivize others to use it. And that was just Bitcoin. And it became this sort of just this decentralized money. But the focus was very much on money. 
And then somewhere around, you know, 2013, 2014, it started to go mainstream. A lot of banks picked up on this chat, a lot of insurance companies, a lot of people that were, I'd say primarily in the finance industry. And this is my industry too. So I'm, this is why I'm talking mostly about this though. People in all sorts of crazy industries are talking about blockchain these days. But, uh, again, it, it's a hype. It's just hype to say that you're going to use blockchain to disrupt your business because, and this is the key difference. And the, the whole world, it, 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 all the regulators, the SEC, businesses, experts in the space, they're trying to define all these different assets and tokens and blockchain, cryptocurrency, crypto assets uh, are out there. People are saying, well, we have security tokens that could replace stocks or we have um, utility tokens like Ethereum or we have, you know, collectible tokens and all, all sorts of these different ways to define these tokens. Uh, there's really only two ways to look at this. And one of them is easy. The other is hard. The easy way is a blockchain like Bitcoin, which again, in my view, is the blockchain. Bitcoin is the cryptocurrency. It's the gold standard for a new way of, of money. And, and we're talking again about digitizing finance. You know, you may see that your, your Kronas in, in your bank account, you see them digitally on the screen, but at the end of the day, that is backed up by one party, uh, which is the Swedish central bank, which they, they have sole control of, of that money. Unless of course, like I said, you have the notes in your hand, then you have the control, but that's, that's a slight nuance. Um, so we, uh, the, the, the point of saying all that is Bitcoin is like a Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Monero, Zcash, Dash, all of these altcoins and Bitcoin, as we've talked about, they are simply asset tokens, or if you want to say utility tokens there, they are tokens where the actual, uh, blockchain can only be run via that token. The, the, the blockchain won't work unless you have the incentive, you know, sort of game theory mechanism, the incentive structure of the token. If you don't have that, then the blockchain just won't function. So Bitcoin without a Bitcoin blockchain without Bitcoin is nothing. There's no incentive to run it. No one would mine it. It wouldn't have hundreds of millions of users around the world now uh, paying attention to Bitcoin. Everybody talking about Bitcoin every day on the news. If you didn't have the Bitcoin token. So again, that's a native first principle, first level. Like you can't get more basic than to say that the Bitcoin Bitcoin and blockchain work together. It, the, the Bitcoin blockchain is the same thing as Bitcoin. One does not work without the other. Now, when you hear blockchain in the news and you hear like businesses and everybody else say that they want to use it and disrupt it, sometimes I think there are good use cases. Sometimes I think there are very bad ones. But I do think there is a role. But for those, the other category, which uh, Fernando uh, is calling it, is, um, is like a proxy, a proxy token or a proxy blockchain. And this one will be more difficult to actually implement because it's not native. And what do I mean when I say a proxy? I mean like real estate, right? So all, all, the whole point of all this with blockchain, again, is to cut down costs, increase efficiencies, make our lives easier as all technology is. <clears throat> but but just to try to show you where the buzzword stops and the real technology starts, again, I know I'm getting a bit long here, but hopefully I can circle it back. Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, all of these cryptocurrencies, they are native asset tokens. So that so that that classification is just as I would say an asset token or a utility token. That they're all together. Doesn't matter if one government wants to classify Ethereum as a security or not. Those are all those blockchains will not work without their tokens. On the other side, we can have these representative or, or proxy tokens. This is more interesting. Uh, it definitely could disrupt things in the real world, but it's not connected to the chain. And, and again, the example I would use is, is like title or deed for property. So, so right now, you know, let's say I imagine it's similar in Sweden as it is in Latvia, but if you, if you go to buy a house or sell your house, uh, you would have to change the deed or the title to the property, probably at an institution in your local municipality. We call it the land book in Latvia. It actually, the whole country, it's done on a national level, but there's different regions, you know, in the U S it's called the auditor's office, but you know, that, that's where the, the title to land lies. And if you want to say that you officially own that land or that house or that building, you need to hold title. 
and if you have a mortgage on it, that can be with the bank and all these things are connected. But they're very slow and inefficient and it takes time and there's a lot of costs. Blockchain could could influence that industry. You can, you can imagine where you can have a proxy token that basically has, inf, you know, ha, it represents, this is where the, you know, the word represent comes, it represents ownership of that house. So if you control that token, you control that house. And maybe you can even connect that to the smart locks on the house. Or if you control that, that token, you can unlock the doors. Uh, that token also shows you how much balance is in your uh, mortgage. So if you bought it for whatever, a million krona, and you have a 800,000 krona balance of a, of a loan, you can connect that to the token. And you can just see that everything is very efficient and it's organized uh, and it's connected peer-to-peer, it's on the blockchain. Everybody knows this. No one can cheat you. And again, this is where Western world also doesn't really see much interest in this is because the Western world is pretty advanced. We already have these uh, these mechanisms in society work pretty well. And this is why I don't, I'm not as excited about these in the Western world, these, these proxy tokens. But if they take hold in the developing world, you know, in places like India or places in Africa or, or Latin America, I think that could truly be disruptive where, you know, no, no dictator can say you don't own that. But here's the problem. This is where it becomes difficult. You're still not connected to the, the digital asset. The digital asset is not connected to the physical asset. There's some, you know, whereas in Bitcoin, the whole blockchain and everybody knows the Bitcoin blockchain is there. The token is native, right? I mean, the token just works on it. But how do you really put your house on a blockchain? I mean... Again, maybe you could put smart locks and everybody uses smart locks and only the lock would open the door. But this is sort of a futuristic thing that you could do. Internet of Things is another idea, you know, with with, uh, uh, driverless cars. They can just run on the blockchain and pay, go to the gas station and refill themselves uh, with with petrol without anybody's permission and then go on to the next client. Maybe those driverless cars don't even have an owner. They just (laughs) run themselves on the blockchain. These types of things could happen, but the challenge is, is connecting that physical asset to the digital asset. And that's where you have these sort of proxy representative tokens. And um, we, we interviewed Patrick Byrne from uh, Overstock.com. He's the CEO of uh, Overstock, the first company in the world, well, the first large company for sure, first public company to accept Bitcoin as payment like four years ago, five years ago. This is like his life mission, uh, along with a famous economist in South America named Hernando de Soto. They want to do this in Latin America. Like there's, there's such a, it's, it's just such, such a chaotic system down there of who owns what land and it's not organized and whatnot. If you did it on the blockchain and everybody recognized those property rights and you, you see, you own this house, maybe you have this house with this much of a mortgage or a loan on it. Uh, It's actually connected to the keys in the house. You can do all that on the blockchain, theoretically. People are trying to do that. They're talking about it. But it's nowhere near implementation. And this is where I'm not as excited about it. First of all, the developed work, because we don't don't need it, you know, even in in Europe or or in the U.S. But in the developing world where you, you basically, you know, they leapfrog telephone lines. They've leapfrogged so many other things, you know, cell phones. They could leapfrog the old system entirely and do a new system on the blockchain. So, so I think it's interesting, but that whole classification for business for the future is what Fernando calls representative tokens or proxy tokens. And you can imagine all sorts of services like insurance policies will only pay out uh, if your doctor signs the blockchain and says, yeah, this person did get sick. He has this policy. It's all connected to this token insurance provider, please pay, you know, but there are a lot of moving parts there, right? Is how do we know that the doctor's not going to, you know, uh, collude or something? These, these are very difficult challenges. Like Bitcoin in itself has a lot of scaling challenges. I can't imagine the difficulty of organizing all of these physical assets on this digital blockchain. So those are, again, I know I get on these tangents, but we have basically Bitcoin, uh, that's a, that's a native asset token and all the other altcoins that run their own blockchains that are public, like Ethereum, Litecoin, they're, they're native asset tokens. And then we have 
really more theoretical in my mind are these proxy or representative tokens where you can, yeah, you can connect the blockchain to your house or to, to an insurance policy or something. But in my opinion, that that's a bit farther out. Could be, could be a decade out. Who knows? Yeah. Great. It's been really interesting to get your take on the disruptive potential of Bitcoin versus blockchain and the differences between the two. Um, and just trying to wrap things up a little bit, could you give us, what do you think will be the one most important thing to remember about blockchain or crypto from this interview for, for beginners or people who aren't very versed in this field? Yeah, so uh, I, I know I get, on, I get excited every time I talk about it, I get on these, these tangents, so I, I'll say a couple things. Great though. <laughs> I'll say a couple things. I uh, hope I hope it's been helpful for your listeners. But um, the the first thing is, uh, be patient. Uh, don't outright dismiss this like you you know you could have dismissed email or or the internet in the '90s. Uh, this this no one can can turn off this technology. No one can shut it down, even if they make it illegal. You know, gold was made illegal 100 years ago in the United States, and no one turned their gold in. They they just hoarded it. They it literally went underground. Uh, so, in the worst case of our social society, where governments are so scared of crypto and Bitcoin, uh, it it just can't be shut down. It can't be turned off, which is a very liberating thing in my mind. So keep that in mind. And then again, I I like to focus on the economic aspects more than the the technical. Even uh, Bitcoin in particular. Uh, Really, for now, I think Bitcoin is the only one where if you own some Bitcoin with all of the research and the development and the network effect behind it, there are only a couple other assets in the world that you can say you truly own it and it's nobody else's liability. You know, even like I was saying before with if you have your bank account and you look at the Kronos on on your screen, you, you, that is your money. And uh, it's very likely that you'll get it when you go to the bank, but that's still the bank's liability. They owe you. And there's probably some loans that are going on behind that that you're not seeing. Uh, from they're, they're lending that money out, even if they're not telling you explicitly. So there's only three assets in the world where that's uh, the case. One is gold. Uh, the other is literally if you have euros or dollars or krona in your hand, the paper notes and coins, then you definitely own it and can definitely spend it. And the third now is is Bitcoin. It's a truly scarce digital asset. No one can take it away from you. If you control the private keys, you you can see it on the blockchain. Everybody else can see the digital representation of that in your public uh, address, as it's called. It's like an account, but it's called an address. And nobody can take that asset away from you. So it's a very safe. Uh, it's a very uh, it's a very uh, interesting asset, and it has in my opinion, better qualities than both fiat uh, paper money and, and gold. So I think it is a better money. And I am, I am absolutely convinced that it's going to be around 100 years from now. So there you go. Great. Thank you for this interview, Matthew. My pleasure, guys. Really uh, happy, to, happy to chat and always happy to talk about uh, something I'm <laughs> so enthusiastic about. So appreciate the interest and uh, yeah. Talk yeah. to you guys soon. Yeah, please let us know where we can find more about you before before you leave. Yeah, so uh, our podcast is uh, available at cryptovoices.com, cryptovoices.com. Uh, the, the show is hosted on SoundCloud. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher and all the uh, traditional outlets for podcasts. Uh, and if you do want to find more about some of these numbers and some of the things I'm saying about these different networks, we track a couple blockchains uh, with some more detailed, uh, pretty detailed financial and economic info at uh, CryptoVoices.com. Okay, great. Thanks. And uh, we, we've really enjoyed having you on the show and hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you for the interest. Take care, guys. So for the last time, let's thank Matthew Matsinskis for joining us on Factor 2.9. We really did enjoy it. And this is, as we said in the intro, the first of many episodes in English to come in this 
podcast called Factor 2.9. Yes, and some of our shows will be interviews with interesting people, and some of the shows will be me and David talking about some new book that we've read, and that's dealing with some subjects that we think will help you and us grow as people. Exactly. We want to grow, learn, and evolve, or learn, grow, and evolve, as our motto is through happiness we want to be very happy as people as well and have a very good life yes that's our goal it might seem a bit high but it's achievable so just join us on on the ride all right so as we said join us for future shows we will be releasing a new show each week that's our goal and we hope you join us next week uh, for some new interesting topic Our contact information are in the show notes of this episode, wherever you found it, which could be on iTunes, SoundCloud, Acast, or any other of the normal or popular podcast providers. So thank you very much for joining us this week. We will see you next week, hopefully. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye.